Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. We invite all who are able to please stand for our first reading. A reading from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Meanwhile, Saul, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The, re the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at, the ha at that house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he, was, he is praying, and he has seen a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my in instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, Something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, I invite those who are able to please stand. And we'll continue in this adventure in Acts 9. Listen now to the word of God. For several days, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem 
among those who invoked his, this name? And has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And meanwhile... The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the increase of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. When a man journeys to a far country, he must be prepared to forget many of the things he has learned, to acquire such customs as are inherent with existence in the new land. He must abandon the old ideals and the old gods, and oftentimes he must reverse the very codes by which his conduct has hitherto been shaped. And so begins Jack London's short story, In a Far Country. This tells a sobering tale of two would-be Klondike gold prospectors, Carter Weatherby and Percy Cuthbert. They are ill-equipped in attitude to make the journey to the Great North. They complain constantly as they travel with a group of hopeful prospectors. They shirk their duties, and when they do them, they do them poorly. They are not team players. The group reaches the McKenzie River. They complain as they travel down, and then they complain as they go up the Peel River. They cross a range, and they reach the headwaters of a creek that will lead to a river that leads in turn to the Yukon River. 500 miles to go in the early winter, and yet, they choose to remain in an abandoned cabin in the Yukon Territory above the Arctic Circle while the rest of the party continues the journey. As the story unfolds, they become angry and uncooperative and distrustful of one another, step by step and action by action. Eventually, they do their own cooking, get their own firewood, watch the, each other's supplies with great suspicion. And in the end, they turn on one another. In the battle that ensues, they take each other's life. As a reader, I knew the direction of this story from the start, 
London skillfully sets it up that way. Yet, like a NASCAR fan just waiting for that car wreck to happen, because it is going to happen, I kept reading the story to its logical, tragic conclusion. These men would not change their ways. They would not work together. They would not encourage one another. And earlier, they would not support their team. They eventually made the path that led to their destruction. What a contrast that is to the early church as we see it in the book of Acts and as we know of it from recordings in the first few centuries. This Sunday, we continue our journey. We're looking at Acts 9, and we see a window into the way the early believers operated. And through this, I want to look at four types of relationships, friendships, as well as a team, or really two teams, two posses that we have here. They explore, these Christians explore, a new far country of community, faith, and networks. They pioneer a new way. Ananias, I want to start with him. This man had incredible courage as well as faithfulness. We have Saul storming his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, and he probably had Ananias' name on his list. Think about it. Saul's purpose in coming to town is to raid your house, arrest your family, go after your close friends. You might even be at the top of his hit list. And yet, when the Lord calls, Ananias responds. I want to go back to that few set of verses there. The Lord has called Ananias to, to speak to Paul. But Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all, all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. And he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. That's how he addressed him. Amazing. God called Ananias, and by God's amazing grace, Ananias responded. I think about today. What is our call today? Are we called to be an Ananias at times? It can be something as simple as a kind word to someone with whom you disagree on a regular basis. It could be seeking reconciliation with someone with whom you've been estranged. A friend shares the story once. A person he knew was in the hospital. They did not get along. They disagreed on numerous topics. But my friend said, 
the person was in the hospital. They weren't doing well. I didn't wish this person ill in that sense. I you know, always wanted to get the best of them in a debate, but did not wish them that ill. In the midst of that, it was like the Holy Spirit said, you need to go visit. My friend drove. He said it was like the Holy Spirit drove that car to the hospital because he's going, I cannot believe I'm doing this. And yet he went and had a visit, some words of encouragement. There were some other people there, and the person got better. It was an Ananias moment at some time to show a little bit of compassion. We have a tough season in life of the larger church here. And during this time, it's a challenge to us to be gracious, even with those with whom we may disagree. Not necessarily to agree, but nevertheless, to be gracious. The path of Ananias can take us, take us all to a far country, a place where we have to ask the Holy Spirit, now where am I going? In what way must I relate? Also in this passage, we see a second kind of relationship, and that is Paul to Barnabas. Barnabas is actually a nickname, and it means son of encouragement. Initially, when Paul comes to Jerusalem, and he's been in Damascus for about three years, the people are not sure about him. They remember what he was like before, arresting them and even working with, assisting in the murder, the martyrdom of Stephen. I can understand their uh, being wary of him, but Barnabas extended the right hand of fellowship. He believed the best and thought the best and basically said, love me, love my dog. And everybody loved Barnabas. I could imagine him even making social calls and nobody's gonna refuse Barnabas at the door. And so Paul gets entree among the believers. I think in another town, a man who been in the depths of alcoholism, but had come to that rock bottom, had joined, had gotten involved with AA, and was back on the way to sobriety. Now, he was lucky in the sense that he had not lost it all when he hit rock bottom. He still had his job and was able to continue. But over the years, there were some men in town, again, rock bottom, get into AA, and in the process, they had burned bridges. Well, this man would make some discreet phone calls as they were getting their lives back together and say, hey, I've talked to this guy, give him a chance. The particular man I have in mind, uh, he had a certain family name in that particular town and people were gonna return his phone calls. And if he vouched for somebody, employers were willing to give, them, to give those people a chance. He was a Barnabas in his community. Think in your own life of friends who build you up friends, the old friends, friends who know you and your story, and they love you anyway. And they not only encourage you in the pleasant, in a pleasant sense, but they also can look you in the eye and speak the truth and sometimes encourage you by saying something that it sounds hard, but it's for your own good. We need to be a Barnabas. And maybe God is calling you to be a Barnabas to someone right now to encourage that person, to extend maybe a right hand of fellowship? Maybe so. 
Now, it's not in this particular passage, but there is another kind, two kinds of relationships that Paul experienced uh, elsewhere, and I want to reference them here, and that is Paul, many years later, to Timothy, his protege. And then Timothy had a Paul. Each of us need a mentor, and each of us need a mentee. Now, there's a variety of these relationships, how they can work. For some, it's an ongoing relationship. It evolves and changes over time, but it's, it's ongoing. For some, it is um, for a season of life, a certain time in life. And for some, times it's more like episodes, uh, a short little episode. Um, I myself, the last couple of years, have had some opportunities uh, to sort of encourage someone uh, a little bit younger than, than, than me. The difference in age can be a full generation. That'd be more like a classic parent-child, a little different because it's a mentor. Or maybe a half-generation, it's more avuncular. Um, or just a few years ahead, like a big brother or big sister, someone along the way. Last year, I was part of a covenant group with three other pastors as part of the Fellowship of Presbyterians. We gathered as our plan four times during the year. And after our first gathering, we set something up. Kind of, we called it the Paul to Timothy time, that when we would gather in different places, we would meet with an older Presbyterian minister. Uh, one case, someone just a few miles ahead of the road for us, but um, nevertheless, we said, this is a Paul to Timothy time. Share your pearls of wisdom. Let us ask kind of any question we want to ask, need to ask. Just a free time, private time for conversation. We met with Doug Webster. He's spoken here on Wednesday nights and taught Thursday mornings. He's a Presbyterian minister. He teaches at Beeson Divinity School. Chuck Roberts, who is an associate at Peachtree, and Scott Weimer, who is at North Avenue. And during one of those times, pastor said, kind of encouraged us and said, yes, you all need to be a Barnabas to one another. He was a bit flattered that we considered him a Paul and said, you all need to be Barnabas to one another. But he also said, you three need to start looking at younger pastors and see how you can be a Paul to them. I guess we'd gotten a little older. Didn't hurt when he said that. It's actually kind of encouraging, but <laughs> we're kind of transitioning to that stage, a place where we kind of need both, maybe. We're on both ends. As one friend wrote, he said, it's time to stop looking for a hero and time to be a hero for someone else. I've shared this story before uh, from Robert Lewis, who founded Men's Fraternity, and we adapted it as Men's Life here several years ago, but it's worth repeating. He talks about a member of his church, Harry, and again, I'm just quoting him in one of his presentations. He said, I had an older man years ago who was sickly, and he felt his life was worthless. It had no purpose, and he came to Men's Fraternity and afterwards told me that. He said, I am just wasting away. And I said, Mrs. Roberts, saying, I said, you know, you have a lot to give. And he said, I don't have anything to give. And I said, sure you do. You got experience. There's a wealth of experience, and I bet there are a lot of young guys that would like to be with you. And he said, I couldn't believe that. So I said, well, I'm going to ask next week. And in the men's fraternity, I said, how many of you younger men would like a mentor, 
an older guy, not a perfect guy, just an older guy to spend time with you. And a lot of the guys raised their hand, and I said, I got a guy for you. The next week, Harry had seven guys he started mentoring and a waiting list of about eight more. And he did that for the next 10 years of his life. And I remember one day being at the athletic club, and we were on the treadmill together, and Harry was going like crazy. And I said, Harry, you are a changed man. You're a healthy man. And he said, you know where I got this health? I got it from the younger men in my life. It started that day when you connected me because I love spending time with these guys. It gave something to both. It was a symbiotic relationship, uh, both learning from it. The older man able to naturally teach from experience and for that older man to give a sense of significance and purpose to his life. And for the younger one, for the protege, it gives him hope. He gets to know he can do it because an older man is saying, yes, you can do it. And it gives him wisdom time. The older man says, here's how you can do it and here's how you can avoid taking unnecessary hits in life. It gives him a bigger personal vision for his life. You can do much more than you know, than you're, than you're doing right now. That's what a mentor says. You can go much further than you're thinking right now. And it provides much needed encouragement. Paul and Timothy each needed the other. Now, these examples I'm giving are men and men, but ladies, it works for you all too. When we think of the movies and the books that speak about these relationships between women because they happen all the time in real life. Through a Bible study, through discipling, women pour into women, encourage them, often not even realizing, oh, I'm mentoring another generation. Four friends and a posse. I spoke of Ananias and Barnabas and Paul and Timothy. In our reading today, we really had two posses or teams. Paul had been in Damascus for three years, and over time he had built relationships with the believers there, and that was a group that helped get him out of town when others were trying to kill him. For a brief time, Saul, Paul, is in Jerusalem. Uh, six months, I'm not really sure that the time frame, what block he is there. He did not know the believers that well in Jerusalem, but when people were after him, once again, a friends, a group of team is out to rescue him. They get him to the port city of Caesarea and then on a boat to Tarsus. Paul needed a team. We all need a team, a place to belong. This can be friends of the road as well as friends of the heart. The other week when Jim Harbison and I were in Russia, we were part of a team from, our, from the Good News Church working there in Rajev with the camp. And it was a short-term event. Now these were some people uh, that I've known, have seen over the years, um, Andre Pelopinko. Some of you all remember him before being here with us. And, people who had come to work on the VBS last summer here. 
But still, for a short time, we were a team. 90% of those children come from unchurched families. Maybe their first exposure really to anything about Christianity. And when we departed, we left Friday morning, so we had to say our goodbyes on Thursday night. It was hard. I would love to have avoided it because it kind of hurt, quite frankly, to have to say goodbye again. But for a time, we had one another to help one another out. For some of us, and we have our short-term teams, we have our long-term teams as well. A circle of relationships in our faith community and maybe a circle of friends in the faith who worship elsewhere. We have maybe several teams to which we belong. We need that company of relationships. We need one another. During the all-purpose, um, all, um, adult, open adult Sunday school, this, this past, the, the, today. Uh, Dick Stone spoke about the men's prayer breakfast. I know Dudley Wells has spoken about it before. That is a team, that is a posse, um, which many members are here. I see a worshiper involved with it, saw a group at 845. It's a group of encouragement where concerns are raised both at the breakfast table and in the larger group. For many, that's just that spark to get through the rest of the week, a place where concern can be shared. I think of someone and her Bible study that was very instrumental in her walk, and even though they are now married and living elsewhere, they're still in touch, encouraging one another, building up one another along the way. I've got my own posse, friends now for several decades, who they know my story and they love me anyway. Carter Weatherby and Percy Cuthbert, the two men in that short story, could not and would not adapt. And they destroyed one another. In the early church, by grace and by necessity, they needed one another. And this chapter gives us a window into the early church as they related. And today I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, where are you calling me at this time? Is your call to be an Ananias, to reach out to someone, to reconcile with someone with whom you are at odds and to make peace? Or maybe just to do a kindness to someone. You'll never be best friends forever but you can at least show an act of kindness where needed. Maybe you're called to be a mentor or called, says, hey, it's time to look for a mentor. You need to be a mentee. Look for someone around you. Again, what I was called was given to me in 2013. It's time for you to be a Paul to someone. Maybe you've got those relationships and you just need to nurture them. You need to call that person again. Maybe at this time God is calling you to be a Barnabas. Maybe you're already a Barnabas to a friend and it's time to make another phone call, send another text, get together for lunch. Or maybe it's time to reach out to someone. Maybe it's about teamwork. Let the Spirit build a network for you 
or reconnect you with your network. If you've got a good system in place, treasure it. See what it can do to make it even stronger. This call to us is not simply a call to be nice. It's more than just that. This teamwork and network, it was survival in the early church, and it is survival for us today. We need one another, just as Paul needed a Barnabas and a Timothy and an Ananias, and Timothy needed a Paul, and they all needed a team, a posse, to survive in a very scary place. Not only to survive, but to thrive and to turn the world upside down. Amen.